welcome to Creative Edge Writers Showcase. I'm your host, Christy Stratus, author of Anatomy of a Darkened Heart and Brotherhood of Secrets, and owner of my editing company at ProofPositivePro.com. This show is part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and our guest tonight is Lou Bayer, an internationally acclaimed civility expert and author of The 30% Solution, How Civility at Work Increases Retention, Engagement, and Profitability. Thank you so much for being here, Lou. Hi there. Hi, Christy. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start off with what civility really is? Because when I hear the word civility, I sort of think just treating people well. But I know there's got to be a lot more to it because you have in your business assessments and classes and all kinds of things. So can you share with us what that actually means? Sure. So you're right. Many people don't understand what civility is. They think that it's about etiquette rules. You know, don't wear white after Labor Day. Just be nice. Um, kindness, those kind of things. And certainly that's part of it. I would say uh, the work that we do, that's about 10% of it. Uh, civility is actually a measurable competency. Um, there are um, hard skills that you can teach people that enable them to be civil. Um, we have a working definition uh, that includes aspects of being conscious, you know, choosing civility. Um, it's about consistency of action. So you can't be civil some of the time. Uh, we often say that there's no gray area. You are or you are not. Um, and the third piece is about easing the experience of others. So just because we're human and on the planet, we have an obligation uh, to do what we can through kindness, respect, restraint, responsibility, non-judgment, all of those uh, sort of day-to-day -day notions of um, etiquette and civility. That's the action that we might take, but the attitude um, comes from a different place and there is a measurable competency. That's really interesting that it's measurable too. Um, and I know that on your website, it says that it is life-changing. And to me, when I'm hearing you speak a little bit more about what it really means, I could see how that is. It probably impacts many parts of your life, not just the workplace environment. Is that right? That's right. So uh, when people ask what we do, uh, the team of experts in, uh, under our umbrella, we call ourselves social architects. So the idea is that by choosing civility, you can change not only your experience, but the environment and the experience of others around you. So civility incorporates everything from how you use resources, including protecting the environment, to uh, how you interact socially and in terms of interpersonal relationship. It includes um, how you make decisions, policies, um, uh, process and procedures, even in a workplace. I mean, the fact is many people don't understand that in workplace, for example, oftentimes it's the policy them themselves that are uh, fostering incivility. And I know um, that it also says that this is sort of a worldwide movement, and maybe it says that on one of your affiliate sites, but I, would, I see that you're in Chicago now, but I think you live in Canada. Are you bringing this message to really all over the world? Oh, yes. Thank you. So under Civility Experts, we have almost 400 affiliates in 43 countries now. Um, this is work that I've been doing for about 20 years uh, through our company, but it's not new work. You know, there are many organizations and individuals, um, companies that have kind of been leading the charge, you know, probably, you know, 20 years before I uh, really got into it full time. They just weren't calling it civility. You know, oftentimes if you look closely at a course syllabus, for example, Civility is social justice, it's civil dialogue, it's um, engaging in uh, meaningful debate, 
It's everything from cultural competence to social competence to uh, even peacekeeping. Um, it's the huge, broad range of aspects of civility that people have been working hard at. It's just in the last, I would say, 10 years. Um, specifically in my career, I can pinpoint a, a time when uh, past President Obama used the term civility and published a book on civility that people started to recognize uh, the term uh, in the way that we use it, as opposed to just etiquette. I'm glad you mentioned cultural uh, comp competent communication because uh, I used to work at a language company and we were also international. And so we would speak to people of all cultures and there were very different ways of communicating through uh, through different cultures. And I think that it's something that um, not everyone thinks about, especially if you only work with people in your country or even your region. But actually it can be fairly, I wouldn't say necessarily difficult but an adaptive type of thing. You really have to pay attention to that culture and how they're communicating and sort of why they're communicating that way. If you want to get your own message across, it's very easy to come across um, either too, you know, pushy or something like that to a culture that is quite the opposite. So I found that particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree with you, but I would suggest that what you're speaking of is uh, on a cultural competence continuum what we would call cultural knowledge. And one of the key pieces of civility and why cultural competence is embedded in that is because at the end of the day, we want people to see people first, not necessarily culture first. And when we can get to the point where we identify uh, without having to label gender or generation or culture, uh, then we find it's much easier to build trust uh, people come to understand that human hyphen kindness um, is about not having to earn respect. You know, one of the key tenets of our philosophy is that respect is not something that you earn. Respect is something that you're entitled to just because you're human and on the planet. Trust is something that you have to earn. And because of cultural variances, nuances of habit and belief systems and so on, um, I would suggest from a civility point of view that trust um, is the barrier oftentimes to respect. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, the, again, ongoing work and research. And to your point, you can never know enough about another person or culture. It's just important to remain open-minded and not make assumptions about, um, you know, and generalizations about those cultures. I love that whole idea, I, and I can totally see where uh, the world would be a much easier and nicer place that way, much more enjoyable. Um, so tell us about your book. Again, it's The 30% Solution, How Civility at Work Increases Retention, Engagement, and Profitability. Um, tell us a little bit about what you discuss in it and maybe what brought about writing the book as opposed to just running the business, but also writing a, a book that people can read. Right. Okay. Thank you. So 30% um, is based on some research um, uh, out of the U.S. that showed that organizations that actively engage in civility initiatives, particularly civil communication plan and civil policy making, experience on average 30% more profit, 40% reduced turnover, and about 20% increases in morale. So um, when you look a little closer at those figures, we see that um, the impact is tangible. Uh, we see reductions in stress. We see increases in day-to-day uh, -day happiness at work. 
And one of the exciting pieces of that is people take that home with them. And so these organizations were not only experiencing measurable impacts in a positive way in their workplace, but we were seeing them carry over to the homes and communities of the employees that were working in those workplaces. Um, and there's all kinds of uh, research cited in the book. It's, it's chock full of interesting little tidbits, but um, everything from the way other countries are addressing incivility because it is uh, ep epidemic in, in most countries, um, governments getting involved. For example, Canada and the US, we have anti-bullying legislation now. Um, one of the chapters in the book, we talk about how anti-bullying legislation from my perspective is really not worth the paper it's written on, that it's an after-the-fact sort of band-aid um, presumed solution that actually, in fact, when you look at the research, um, it, it actually increases incivility in the workplace, um, contrary to what we thought. Only 4% of anti-bullying campaigns in schools, for example, are effective in reducing bullying. Um, so we spent millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars on anti-bullying, for example, and it doesn't offer the solution that we thought. If we had put even a fraction of that money into teaching as early as age four to six, which we're doing now in Canadian schools and some U.S. schools, if we had spent some of that money teaching um, things like non-judgment, cultural competence, uh, building social radar skills. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but the ability to, to recognize what's going on around you and read people, anticipate if they're upset or happy, and then to know how to repair if you've created some distress. Uh, we call that social intelligence, but social radar is a big piece of that. And we know from the research, it's also in the book, that social radar has plummeted um, in the generations from age 10 to uh, 25 by about 80% in the last 10 years. So we're not present to each other. And as a result, as you would guess, all sorts of incivility and miscommunication ensue. You actually touched on a number of things that I definitely want to ask you about. I think it's a fascinating subject, but I do want to ask first how you got into this line of work and how you got into this. It's really is inspiring. It's, it's motiv motivating. It sounds very exciting. You know, it's the way of the future, I would think. Um, so how did you first get started on this? When did you discover you wanted to work on this in general? So I, I didn't, uh, you know, when I graduated from university, I took a job as a manager in a hotel. Uh, it's grueling work. People behave badly sometimes when they're on holiday, and uh, staff aren't always treated well in hospitality environments. But, um, you know, after about two years of working 80 hours a week and watching people wear their yoga pants to other people's formal wedding, watching people walk right by a four-foot sign that says no food in pool area with four pizza boxes, um, watching people, you know, put their hands uh, in the food on the buffet line, you know, potentially making 200 other people sick, um, theft, you know, all, all kinds of things. Um, you know, I started out with a woman I worked with at that hotel. We um, decided we were just stressed and had had enough and we were going to start a business at that time teaching dining etiquette because it was appalling table manners and that's what we were seeing every day. And so on a lark, kind of, we went at lunchtime to the TD bank that was around the corner, spoke to a woman there and said, you know, we'd like to start an etiquette business teaching people table manners and, you know, wedding etiquette and so on. 
uh, what would it take to do that? And she said, it's your lucky day. Just today, we started a women in business loan program. Um, you can have a loan um, today. Here you go. Just sign here. And so we walked out of there and um, quit our jobs, had this small business loan, um, and started teaching etiquette. Um, about four years in, after teaching the same children at courtesy camp, uh, three years in a row, it occurred to me that uh, it didn't matter how many manners classes people attended, if they really didn't understand um, the value of manners, that it wasn't just for social climbing, that it wasn't just to appear to be civil, that they really had to adopt a, a civil attitude and philosophy. Um, also, my error was thinking that children needed the training. You know, I often cite a quote from Fred Astaire. He said some 40 years ago that the hardest job kids have to learn these days is behaving with good manners without seeing any. He said that many, many years ago, and it's as true now as it was then. But I had a realization that it's the it's really not the children. Um, we had at that time, and it may be, still be true, very few good examples of role models in sports, in classrooms, in politics, in church even, um, and many parents working three jobs between two parents and not able to um, fulfill kind of the social training that maybe I was brought up with. Um, and so it just occurred to us that we needed to shift gears. And so we shifted our focus to teaching adults social skills. And it turned out that you know, we got to earn a living. So uh, it, it was uh, more profitable to work with corporate environments, which subsequently has become our niche expertise. So um, 20 years later, here we are. That's a fantastic story. I really love that. And I love the quote from Fred Astaire too. Um, I've heard similar things. <laughs> Not, I mean, obviously his is fascinating because it's from an era where we assume everyone was always polite and, okay. you know, and that's not actually necessarily true. So I find that fascinating. And your story is really a great one. Um, you specifically did mention young people and although it's not only young people who need this, um, on one of the affiliate websites, I saw uh, specifically social etiquette for young people. And I wanted to ask you what you did touch on already, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more. Um, does this help combat the lack of social skills that we are ending up with because of social media, really not talking to people as much and, you know, just texting back and forth instead of calling or not getting together, but instead, you know, just doing something, I don't know, on Facebook or whatever you're going to do. Um, does this help with that aspect, um, specifically the social media problem? Um, I believe it does help. Um, and I think uh, I'll try to keep the answer to that short question short, but um, at the end of the day, when we teach social skills, one of the outcomes is not so much, we're not striving that people know all the rules, because if you're just focused on the rules, you'll never keep up, you'll make mistakes. Um, when we teach civility, what we really want to do is teach people thinking skills, um, social thinking, and impact thinking, what we would call systems thinking. We want them to understand that they have the power to impact others and they should be considering what's the consequence of this action or if I do this what might possibly happen um, can I manage that risk we want them to think about um, can I build trust long term if I engage in this behavior will I be perceived as confident and competent and credible and which nonverbal cues and verbal um, comments and what gestures 
convey that I'm a trustworthy person, that I have ethics and standards, that I believe in social justice, etc. So at the end of the day, we want people to take on um, a character representation of their real values. And we hope that those values, um, you know, civility underpins um, what, what I would describe as a sub-value, but civility is the core. Um, and as a result of that, they tend to exhibit more socially acceptable behaviors, as in put your phone down when the waitress is taking your order, don't interrupt people, wait your turn, share, say thank you. You know, some of those kind of uh, graceful and uh, social courtesy pieces. That naturally happens, but my hope is that we um, foster in children a confidence whereby they can easily assess, easily and correctly assess a social situation and choose behavior in a way that puts them in a light where they are perceived as kind and um, trustworthy and non-judgmental and civil uh, more often than not. Because sometimes you'll make mistakes, but in that case we hope that their social radar is such that they can assess that they've made a mistake and then repair appropriately. Um, we don't want people just to follow the rules. In fact, it, for children age 4 to 10, we don't use, say, Emily Post, which is a wonderful uh, resource in some cases, but not I, do, I don't believe personally for children. Um, we would teach them what we call the four E's philosophy, which is sort of a modern version of the golden rule. It's that everyone in every situation gets exactly the same respect and consideration every time. And so we don't make choices that, we treat uh, the neighbor different than we treat the taxi driver, different than we treat the doctor. Um, you know, everybody is deserving of equal respect. And we find that if children have that mentality, um, they go into situations anticipating equality, and they don't weigh and measure the gesture. They just behave as their natural tendency most often is in this humankind way. I know that you mentioned, I believe you called it social intelligence, which you touched on again here. And um, part of that was um, repairing if something, you, you said something that, um, you know, accidentally upset somebody, you know, of course that wouldn't be your intention, but if it happened, how can I repair that gap? And in my previous workplace, um, we talked a little bit about, and this is more your expertise than mine, but we talked a little bit about emotional intelligence, which was sort of defined a little bit more reactionary, where mm -hmm. it was sort of when somebody does something that offends you or upsets you, how to sort of not be upset over it. Um, and so I kind of like the idea that we're all responsible instead of just sort of having to take it inside and deal with it a little bit, you know? Um, I like that you're, the point is to set it up for us all to think about each other constantly um, instead of being sort of, ack, somebody said something that hurt me, I don't know what to do, I have to figure it out just inside and say nothing, sort of. Um, that can be really difficult, and I'm sure you've probably come across that way of thinking in other workplaces too. Yes, and I would say in a workplace, especially with adults, we do very, very little uh, work in the area of emotional intelligence, particularly because of what you've just stated. Um, emotional intelligence is inward looking. It's an eye focus. And in a workplace, for me in Canada in particular, um, it's actually contrary to our human rights uh, and labor code legislations 
um, some of that I work, the saying, this is my hot button, this is a trauma I incurred, this is something that I'm sensitive to. We, we can't ask those questions under our Canadian labor law. And so to teach emotional intelligence and to put a team in a room where they're with their boss and they're disclosing all of these highly personal and sensitive pieces that we're legally not allowed to address or discuss after we leave the classroom, it really is not terribly valuable. I do think emotional intelligence in and of itself is tremendously important, but I think that it's the individual's responsibility to to learn about him or herself and so on. Social intelligence, to your point, is outward facing. And we see some research from Harvard that said that up to 85% of your long-term success in life and work is actually based on your social skills, uh, which includes social radar, social knowledge, and ability to adapt your social style. So 85%, that's enormous uh, for me. Understanding as well, additional research that said that for most people, uh, only about 7% of their behavior is uh, self-monitored or deliberate or controlled. So if I can teach social IQ and uh, help you uh, increase by, you know, 75 or 80% your ability to read other people, to be perceived as positive and confident and credible, that's where I'm going to spend my corporate dollars and training, right? Um, and this ability to read other people and be present um, that increases incidence of civil behavior by at least 50% in a workplace environment. So that's from a business case, the return on investment. We cover that in the book as well. Um, that's where we tell people to spend your money, right? And if you think about forward-facing client uh, service, you know, the person, the cashier or the greeter, um, the concierge at a hotel, all of those people, um, it's shocking to me that workplaces don't test their social IQ and build their social IQ because you can teach it um, before they put them on the floor interacting in those high stress, um, really interpersonally dominant environments, right? Yeah, and I, I did read um, some reviews of your book and uh, people were staggered really by the statistics that you share. And I can say that I am too when I hear these statistics. Um, a lot of them were saying how much it really changed their outlook on life. And I know that you have received some awards uh, for your work in civility. Could you tell us a little bit about what awards you have won? Oh, thank you. So um, I received from a group called I Change Nations. Um, it's it's for work in social justice. I received an award there. Um, I'm actually in Chicago. The end of the month, I've had the privilege of being awarded a Congressional Educator of the Year Award um, uh, by uh, Congressman Danny K. Davis. Um, uh, there's over the last five years many many uh, awards. Thank you for acknowledging that. It's um, tremendously rewarding work, and uh, it's nice. Um, from finally for people to see that there is measurable impact. Um, yes, and now I have the privilege of being part of some award systems as well to to honor people who are doing doing the work as well. So I'm very excited about that. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's well-deserved. I can already see where people would learn so much in any kind of course, whether it was corporate or, or not, from you. Um, I know that you're also a featured presenter and personal coach on Transformational TV, which started earlier this year. And I was interested to hear a little bit more about that too. 
Right, thank you. So Transformation TV, I have a course there called The Power of One, and it's tied to a keynote presentation that I do. Um, it relates to our individual, what I would call moral and uh, ethical responsibility to choose civility, not only to um, leverage and uh, show grace and gratitude for the individual gifts that we each have, but to ensure that we make a contribution um, in a positive way to the world around us. And so, um, interestingly enough, it's it's based on sort of a life-changing time for me when I watched on W5 um, a program about the war in Rwanda and a woman named Immaculate Ilipagiza who survived the genocide. Um, and I was at home feeling sorry for myself on that particular night. I had just been through a rather difficult bout with um, ovarian and cervical cancer and um not handled it with grace and gratitude, let's just say that. And so um, it was just opportune, the timing of that uh, show, and uh, it changed me. Um, and just recently, this past August, I had a chance to go to Rwanda uh, to visit the Kigali Memorial and Kigali Peace School. Um, and now I'm, I'm really privileged and proud to do some work uh, with uh, an initiative called Champion Humanity. And to me, that's really the epitome of civility, is preventing um, war and violence, genocide, um, this kind of human kindness to the extreme level. So um, there's always some, some aspect of civility that a person can adopt and learn and grow into. And um, I, I learn something every day in this work. I want to also touch on um, the final thing that I'd like to touch on is what other people can do. And I saw that the National Civility Center offers an online civility community ambassador course. And so I wanted to ask you what it means to be a civility ambassador. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Wow, you did your homework. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Civility Center, uh, I'm volunteer executive director for Civility Center. Um, and there's all kinds of resources there. There's a toolkit, for example, over a thousand mostly free tools and resources and books. There's a civility calendar of events. It links to a civility, a global directory of organizations and individuals who are working in the field of civility. Um, and the course itself, I think it's $40, $39 US or something, but there's modules in there that talk about how, whether you're somebody who uh, is a mom at home raising her family, there's a civility ambassador work you can do. Uh, in terms of how you can engage your neighbors or bring civility into your family, introduce a conversation at the dining room table. Um, you can be an ambassador at school, in politics, in sports. I think there's 12 modules there. So the course is about how to personally um, take on the role of uh, being civil, you know, choosing civility personally, and how you can start the conversation and initiate some civility-oriented activities that might be as simple as posting a civility um, uh, civility calendar or posters or um, sharing some of the tools and resources, assessments. Um, the, the course outlines things that every individual can do uh, in different contexts uh, to be an ambassador for civility. That's great to hear. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, Lou. Can you tell us where we can find you after this broadcast? I'm Lou, L-E-W, at civilityexperts.com. You can certainly Google me, Lou, last name is Bayer, like the aspirin, or visit our site, civilityexperts.com, and it links back to 
Civility Center and all of these other resources. I believe there's a free download of 30% Solution right on the home page as well. The Civility Culture Compass for Workplace is free. It's there. Um, CivilityExperts.com. Thank you. I hope you will all check that out. I know that I am very interested to check it out. And um, thank you all so much for joining us on the Creative Edge Writers Showcase. This has been a copyrighted podcast owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Creative Edge Marketing. We're going to be back in next week, actually, at 9 p.m. Eastern with Ellen Michelle, and she is a book reviewer and author interviewer. So in the meantime, you can look up our show on Facebook for updates, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you.